The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots, Mike McCarg here. It is so good to see everyone today. Uh, you know, a funny reflection right up top. Number one, oh, I see everyone saying hello. Uh, it's very, very good to see you. <laughs> so much fun. So this is a live program. Uh, so as you're responding, no matter whether you're, where you are watching, if you're on YouTube or Facebook or Twitch, uh, if you're that one person on Twitch or if you're watching on Twitter or Periscope, I can see every comment you leave in real time. We've set things up that way. I so enjoy it. And here's a free little aside for you all that I was reflecting as uh, the the timer was counting down. I was trying to combine counter and timer in my brain there for a second. Uh, I realized that the difference between collared shirts and uh, regular shirts is now completely academic for me because the beard has now eclipsed 100% my shirt's collar. So is it a t-shirt? Is it a collared shirt? Who knows? The beard has taken everything. Hi, everyone. It is really good to see you. And uh, on this Monday, we're going to have a lot of fun together. Uh, as I see a lot of people saying in the comments, we do have a special guest for this program, Dr. Hillary McBride, but more on that later. Uh, this, uh, <laughs> this week, we're going to talk about big differences or the ways in which as we grow and change, it can become difficult to uh, relate to the people we grew up in our family of origin and in the community that we're from. And uh, if you're wanting to review what has happened or share it, here's what you need to know. We release every segment of the program throughout the week as social video on all the major platforms. So if you saw a piece you want to share with friends or family, that's an easy way to do it. And this show does come out as a podcast on Wednesdays uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and basically everywhere podcast podcasts. So wherever you're watching or listening, just make sure you like and subscribe to see updates whenever we include them. And I'd love to hang out with you right after this show in our Discord group. Now, you'd be like, what is Discord? That is part of our Patreon community. The Cozy Robots are the people who make this show possible. And we get together and literally talk on Discord after the program every week in the after party. So if you'd like to learn more about that, just go visit us at CozyRobots.com. Oh, thanks for saying that, Ross. That's so kind. <laughs> so... Uh, again, tonight, uh, we are talking about big differences. Like, you know that saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? I'm starting to wonder if that's true at all. <laughs> you know, like, um, I'm noticing that people seem to have wildly different and divergent worldviews from their family and from their communities of origin. The apple seems to be not only falling far from the tree, but like falling further and further over time. And people, myself included, often feel confused and disoriented about the differences that arise in their worldviews between those of their parents or caregivers. After all, these are the people who raised us. These are the people who taught us. And the stakes feel very real. When we look at major issues in the world, we see significant differences on generational lines, on matters of attitudes toward race, for example, towards gender, acceptance of climate change, ways to mitigate a global pandemic. All of these things show 
generational gaps that are significant, as if getting together on the holidays wasn't hard enough already. You know, when we get together with our families, we can fall into old habits and old patterns, and us we don't really identify with anymore starts to show up as we participate in a family system, and that can make us nervous or combative or even make us feel disempowered. So how can we bridge the gap between who we are today and the people who knew us when we were younger? And should we even try? Is that even a productive way to spend our efforts? And I think we could start by trying some techniques that can make us feel more grounded and peaceful in those times that we need them. Well, you know how it goes. We grow and we change as people and we learn new ways to relate to ourselves and relate to others. We often move to new communities or even just a new part of town. We might be living independently for the first time or we might have moved across the country or across the globe. And then something surprising happens. We find ourselves in conversation with someone who knew us back then, back before whatever change we've made in our lives. And the things we take for granted in our relationships, the commonality in viewpoints or even just in communication styles are suddenly gone. And we find ourselves upset, confused, overwhelmed, or trapped. In those moments, our nervous system activates. We feel defensive. We feel sometimes afraid, overwhelmed, or fearful. As our bodies try to find an equilibrium, and this is made all the more complicated because when we're talking to people who are related to us, who grew up with us or around us or are part of communities we were a part of as children, our bodies know ways of fitting in socially. We know how to blend in. But if we've gone through major changes in life, that old script doesn't quite seem to fit anymore and we find ourselves in a state of dissonance. That's all fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's part of being a person. But when it's overwhelming, when it leads us to behave in ways that we don't enjoy or even approve of sometimes, maybe we find ourselves irritable, saying things that we would regret. Maybe we find ourselves simply unable to enjoy connecting with someone whom we're fond of. So I thought in our moment of calm today, we could practice what it's like to connect with ourselves to understand who we truly are. Here's a few tips and things that I've learned that you could do right now if you'd like to try this with me. If it's safe for you to do so, you could close your eyes. And then I just want you to imagine a moment where you felt very loved, where you felt very happy, where you felt very safe. I have one of these moments I use all the time. When my daughter Macy was very young, just learning to speak, she was telling me a story. I couldn't really understand it. But at the very end, she said, 
I love you, Daddy. And when I recall that memory, that wonderful little voice, I feel a wave of positive emotions. I feel joy. I feel happiness. And I do feel loved. We understand that changes the chemistry of our bodies and our brains. So the first thing we can do in times we want to connect with ourselves is connect with a happy memory. Another thing we can do is name a deeply held value, something that's very important to us. When I name that for myself, I might say that I value integrity or authenticity, that integrity and authenticity are things that I appreciate in myself and look for in other people. Take a moment right now and name to yourself just one or two of your deeply held values. When you do that, again, it changes the activity in your brain and you still may feel overwhelmed. You still may feel a sense of dissonance when you fall into old patterns of relating to people you've known for a long time. And so there's one other tip I'd like to offer you. That's belly breathing. You know, when we breathe all the time, we don't really pay attention to it. And we often, we breathe way up in the top of our chest, very shallow. And what I'm admonishing you to do is to place a hand like on your belly button. And as you breathe in, try to move your hand as much as you can. And then one thing you can do is when you breathe out in a belly breath is purse your lips and try to puff out your cheeks. That was a good one. That was an even better one. Did you try those things? Did you picture a happy memory? Did you name a value or two? Did you breathe from your belly and pay attention to that breath? Now I'd ask you, how did you feel when we started our moment of calm? And how do you feel now? It so often changes the way that we feel. (laughs) If you are listening later or watching the replay, you don't know why I'm laughing, but Bryn just said my cat is deeply offended by belly breathing, apparently, and I could just picture that exhale and the cat running away thank you for that moment of joy (laughs) oh that is wonderful yes your cats don't appreciate our attempts to ground ourselves and relate to ourselves in ways that feel more supportive or more productive or more adaptive but those three things positive memories stating deeply held values and belly breathing are proven ways to transform the way we feel in a given moment. So, (laughs) thank you, Brent. Yeah. And let's keep the lights on. What do you say? You know, the Cozy Robot Show would be impossible without the support of our wonderful sponsors. The first of which tonight is BetterHelp, which is an online mental health counseling service that over 1 million people have signed up for. In my opinion, it is the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support because it's all done digitally online, which makes it perfect for this era of social and physical distancing. 
Using BetterHelp, you can connect with your counselor using text, chat, calls on the phone or video. I've done all four. They all work great. I use BetterHelp every day. They allow you to work with a mental health counselor who is licensed, a real professional LCSW, at least people with all levels of counseling experience are available on the service. And one thing I love about BetterHelp is they find your therapist for you. You go to their website, you fill out a form, and then they connect you with a therapist you will love. And if it just doesn't work, and sometimes it doesn't, they'll connect you with a new therapist for no additional charge. It's a great service, and you can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash sciencemike. And our other sponsor today is my longest-standing continuous sponsor, KiwiCo, a wonderful company. You know, STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math is so important for our world today and in the future. And KiwiCo makes learning about STEAM fun for people of all ages, and I do mean all ages. They have products for infants all the way up to senior adults. And here's how it works. You go to KiwiCo.com slash AskScienceMike and then pick out a line that is age-appropriate and focused on either an engineering discipline and a math discipline or more of an arts discipline or something blended. And then they automatically send you Kiwi crates every month. You don't have to do a thing. They just show up. I have built ukuleles and trebuchets, room lights and backpacks. My family has all built items of their own, and it's a blast. And you know, hands-on learning is valuable at all ages. And both distance learning and social isolation make that a challenge. So KiwiCo offers a solution at the moment we need it most. Best of all, you can get 60% off your first month's service, your first month subscription, by going to KiwiCo.com slash AskScienceMike. I'm so thankful to both BetterHelp and KiwiCo for making this show possible which (laughs) you podcast listeners are gonna be so confused that i'm laughing so much but you're missing out you should join us on some monday night for the live filming because the contents are hilarious (laughs) uh as caleb just said moment of calm takeaway number one patronus number two you can fly three cat (laughs) that is wonderful Uh, So tonight we're going to talk about big differences. We're really going to get into it. And, uh, you know, we like to base our show around your questions. And this week, um, Wes Curtis sent in a question that I think sums up where we'd like to go together really well. Hey, Science Mike. My question revolves around talking to friends and family members who are entrenched in uh, confirmation bias in their conspiracy theories or their fake news beliefs. How do I talk to people that are at a different place on the political spectrum or ideological belief spectrum and try to hash through something critically while maintaining our relational health because I feel like so much um, so much gets triggered and people get defensive when you start questioning what they think because it's like you're questioning who they are. So the urgency of addressing certain issues kind of provokes that, that necessary tension and yet the rubber band could snap if people feel pushed too far and then you can't talk at all. 
I mean, wow. Thank you, Wes. You nailed it. I mean, that is exactly what it feels like to be alive in 2020. Whenever we try to talk to people we know and love, be they friends or family, or just someone we're meeting online, it seems like there's all these hidden landmines. You know, something I've wondered a lot. I grew up as an evangelical Christian in the southeastern United States. I was extremely conservative, both socially and politically and theologically. The triple threat. And yet, I've gone through these radical changes in how I see and understand the world. But when I try to talk to friends and family who haven't undergone the same journey, it often feels like we're alien civilizations trying to carry on a conversation. This is not an easy topic. And it stands at the intersection of all the problems we face as a society and the challenges we often have in our own family systems. And that is why I am so excited about tonight's special guest. There is no one, and I mean absolutely no one, I'd rather speak with about working through the differences we face in our families and communities than tonight's special guest on the program, Dr. Hillary McBride, a therapist and researcher who specializes in a brain-centered understanding of mental health and how we can transform ourselves and our societies through a better relationship with our feelings. Hillary is a best-selling author. She's a co-host of the Liturgist podcast. Uh, she hosts a show called Other People's Problems. And she just is one of the most delightful, brilliant, and empathetic people I've ever met. And so it is my absolute joy to share with you this conversation that Hillary and I had just a couple of days ago. Hillary, thank you for joining us this evening, I guess, on the Cozy Robot Show. Um you know, I have been thinking a lot about families and family systems. You know, one of the things I love the most about my work is all the little things I learn about people's lives because they they, they send me things. They send me recordings for the program. They send me letters. They send me cards. Um, you know, and I just get a lot of feedback on, on, on where people are in their lives. And there seems to be something significant right now in that all around the world, we are seeing major differences in worldview and I would, I would say philosophies around inclusion that are drawn along generational lines. And this is causing a lot of difficulty and anxiety and conflict and hurt feelings Inside of family units, you know, there's uh, in the United States what we would call the Thanksgiving question. Like, am I going right. to go home <laughs> and have Thanksgiving with these people who I grew up with and had maybe a complicated relationship with or maybe didn't? Maybe people feel shocked or disenfranchised because they can't believe where their caregivers or parents or relatives are now in worldview. And, or maybe they had a... a a relationship fraught with difficulty, but I thought it might be really interesting and helpful uh, since I actually happen to be friends with Dr. Hillary McBride 
uh, to invite you on to talk a little bit about family systems and family units and all the complexity that happens in those spaces. Um, and so if you'd be willing, I'd love to just ask you a few questions about families and kind of how we get to where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm willing. Okay. <laughs> I'm willing. Um, the first thing I could be curious about is our families play such a huge role in how we develop and the kind of beliefs mm-hmm. we hold. You know, when I was a small child, my beliefs about politics or culture or religion were just photocopies of my parents' belief systems. So if that's the case, how is it that over time people actually develop divergent worldviews from their parents and their family systems? It's such it's such an important question, right? I think especially as you are contextualizing it in light of what's happening in the world politically, how how did we get here, right? What is going on can be a helpful way of setting us up to have good conversations, to have meaningful conversations, to have healthy relationships or to draw boundaries when we need to. So I'll step back for a moment and talk a little bit about social learning theory, social identity theory. These ways of understanding the development of a person tell us that what's happening around us socio sociopolitically impacts what we learn in school and it impacts what our peers are interested in. And ultimately those things shape who we are and are striving for belonging and connection. We tend to think of ourselves being so individualistic, but what's happening around us is the container for so much of our thinking and our behavior. And we have these critical periods where we're open, where we're learning, where we are trying to be awake in the world and where there are a lot more inputs that are coming in just based on our exposure to different ideas and different people. And so when we're taking that all in, It's important to remember that that is happening in a particular time and place in our life. And usually when that's happening for us, our parents are at a very different developmental stage. Their brains are actually starting to do more conservation and less of the intentional expanding. And for them to be expanding, they have to be really intentional about it. So we have this family unit where it's made up of so much of the sameness of sharing a lot of DNA and genetic information and sharing life experiences. And at the same time, there are these different processes developmentally that are happening concurrently. And even when our parents don't know that they're employing certain parenting techniques, there is just more information available from one generation to the next that informs these cultural norms. So we're pulling from what is around us constantly to make sense of being human. And often we don't even know that we're doing it. We don't know how we're doing it. And we're born into these contexts that shape us. They mold our brain, even when we don't know that it's happening. And that happened for our parents and it happened for their parents and it's happening for us right now. And so for those of you who are watching, who are parents, you might think, gosh, I I know so much more than my parents. I'm so much more evolved than them. Look at how different I am from them. And of course you are, but ideally there will be a point in your life if you are parents, where your kids think that about you too. And that won't be because you are bad as a human. It will be because we move towards progress. We move towards different ideas. There is evolution in knowledge that is constantly happening. Our thinking is shaped by who we're around, what we're digesting, and whatever is popular, current, and accessible to us. And it's likely going to impact us, right, in ways that we don't even know necessarily. Because of these generational differences, 
if we're not necessarily hanging out with our parents, friends all the time, and we're hanging out with our peers, the context that we're in shapes how we think. And then we go back to these places where we see our family and it was all of those slow, imperceivable changes impacted by who we're with and how we're learning and what's happening for us developmentally that then become really acutely obvious when we all of a sudden meet back and expect sameness, but sameness isn't there in the way that we thought it would be. Gosh, you know, I, it seems obvious, but it certainly is not to me. Uh, when I was a child, the idea that my parents were in a developmental stage or a life stage right. <laughs> or changing was unimaginable. And that carried on pretty far into adulthood. I mean, I had children of my own before I realized my parents had life stages and life journeys. And I guess I knew they had peers, but that was such a strange and foreign concept to a child. It's that's a such a unique place our caregivers exist in our mindset compared to any other people. Um, mm-hmm. And that is just so helpful, at least for me, to remember that, um, gosh, when I was a child, my parents were moving into a different phase of life. Now that I'm an adult, they have left that phase of life and gone into still another phase of life. And... Um, that's certainly, you know, I just like brains. <laughs> so yeah. <understanding laughs> you should, there's you some should. of that at play is helpful. Yeah. And I think that in particular, why that's helpful is it's humanizing of these people that although we love them, we're often frustrated by them. And as soon as we're frustrated by somebody and we see them as different from us, while there may be ideological differences, the uh, assumption of difference as being primary in how we relate actually creates a barrier for connection. And so when we think about ourselves as human and we think about our family members as human and we actually think about the thread that connects us all, this developmental trajectory through the lifespan, it it repositions us away from difference into sameness or into compassion and understanding, which is really the only place that we can be in if we're going to either one, have an existing relationship or two, affect change in those relationships at all. Coming in, assuming difference, coming in, assuming um, superiority or hierarchy actually erodes the foundation that would be need to be there for us to have meaningful conversation that could support someone to change their mind about something. Well, that's interesting. You know, if we talk about uh, change or discussion or, you know, we have, we're fraught with so many difficult challenges as a global society right now. There's such a move towards nationalism in majority white countries all over the world. Uh, whether a given culture accepts the existence of climate change or not, we know that most cultures aren't actually doing very much in response to the existence of climate change, even you know, in places like Europe or Asia where acceptance of the scientific fact of climate change is quite high, propensity to action is still quite low. Uh, so we have all these very significant issues and we have generational divisions about not how to proceed but whether to proceed at all. But it's not just generations, you know. Um, It seems like whenever we are talking about a matter of importance, people from our family of origin can be the most difficult people to talk about these things with. And yet also kind of the place where maybe 
we carry the most influence uh, or have certainly the most, right. you know, intimacy or the, the most ability to create conversation. So why is it so much harder to talk to people from our family of origin about challenging topics? There's a lot in what you're asking. And I'll start by saying that hard conversations are hard, no matter who we're having them with. And we tend to not have hard conversations with strangers that we actually don't have deep relationships with or expectations of closeness from. So hard conversations are going to be hard wherever we're having them, but we just have fewer of them with people that we don't know that we don't have a lot of baggage with or pain associated with or expectation or hope for. We can easily get agitated and feel threatened and scared and then defensive, when, which tends to create agitation or defensive reactions in other people. And it can happen the other way around too, that people come at us with agitation and, and threat and feeling defensive, which creates that response in us. Mm-hmm. And that tends to only happen with things that are really meaningful for us. So there's meaningful content and there's meaningful people And when you add all of those things into the mix, combined with the fact that most of us don't have the social tools or the skills to be able to emotionally regulate when we're talking about difficult things, it's really like a a storm waiting to happen, so to speak. So we have these ideological differences and they're mixed with closeness or the expectation of closeness. And it can create this cognitive dissonance. How is it that we see ourselves as so different when there is this longing to feel close or this uh, this expectation that because we're family, we'll understand each other? And I think that just raises the stakes. And so while most of us have some level of difference from our parents, the risk of those conversations going poorly creates this pressure cooker situation where we go in and we're already agitated or we feel the, we feel the sense of, looming disappointment of how they're going to handle the conversation. Mm. And I think if we, if we really step back, there is something psychologically going on for children navigating relationship with adult parents, because there is an awareness of the death that our parents are no longer our heroes. And it means losing who they are no longer to us. Mm. So there's a pain there. There's a grief there. I think psychically, or psychologically is another way of saying that there is a, a grief in realizing we have outgrown our parents, that we are not necessarily able to turn for towards them to be the, the conduit for the source of wisdom and knowledge. And that can make us feel, um, yeah, the grief, the pain, which again, leaves us moving or has us going into a conversation already feeling like we're preloaded with some intense emotion. Mm. And I mean, there's a few other things I could go on about this at length because the parent-child relationship is so important or any parent or caregiver and who they spend their time with shapes, shapes the brain of that, that little being. And what does it mean to go into the world and differentiate and realize that you are different than the people that you came from and you are also still same. I mean, there is, there is so much complexity in that. Mm. We see our families as extensions of ourselves. And so on some level, I think it also loads the intensity onto our nervous system going into the conversations thinking if they keep behaving that way, somehow that is an extension of me. And and I need for them to change in order to know that I've done my part in the world or that I'm good or that people don't see that behavior and think, think that it means something about me. 
But then the the other piece of it is the parent. We've been talking mo- talking mostly about what it's like to be the ab- adult child in that conversation, but not all parents love to be challenged by their kids. Not all parents love to give up the role of being the hero and to take responsibility. My parents gave me an incredible gift of acknowledging their mistakes and teaching me that that was part of adulthood. But even for them, it's really hard when I want to challenge them. It can be so threatening on an egoic level for parents to be challenged by their kids. And sometimes that creates a defensive response just because of the dynamic where they might hear it differently from a peer or somebody that they look up to. The idea that parents are supposed to be on the top of this hierarchy of knowledge can perhaps leave them feeling vulnerable to the criticism or the feedback or the education of their kids. And there are strategies that we can employ around that to kind of shift the power a bit so that parents might feel a little bit more open to hearing our criticism and feedback. Mm -hmm. But it takes an incredible amount of ego strength. And ego strength, we mean that in terms of self-integrity or uh, self-strength in identity to be able to hear feedback or challenge from a child and to know that that doesn't actually diminish your role and your value and your goodness as a parent. Mm. Gosh, you know, as you're talking, I thought about the difference in expectation like a, a preemptive expectation almost that we place on our relationships with our families versus our friends. You know, our friends, we kind of work together to create a relationship dynamic. We, we met at some point um, and then continue to be friends because of some sense of commonality or camaraderie or something. And so uh, our friendships get built in a way that they're almost structured uh, to maybe have less burden of expectation associated with them when compared to people who raised us, or we grew up in our home with, or people who are siblings to our caregivers or um, you know, multi-generational family units where there's also so much more uh, socially prescribed roles. Uh, a lot of family systems are kind of, as you were saying, very hierarchical. And all of those things coming into play is a serious challenge uh, in, in <laughs> small, com- easy conversations. You know, right. it, it seems <laughs> to me like often one of the most challenging things to any relationship is the burden of expectation. It's almost the enemy of presence. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really challenging. Because mm-hmm. for so many people right now, they are becoming aware of the ways in which our world is often fundamentally opposed to any notions of true equality or inclusion. There are large systemic effects that impact groups of people, that impact women, that in, impact people along lines of race and ethnicity or uh ability or age, gender, sexuality, all these things are very challenging. And so when we become aware of those things, often because our friend group grows to include more different types Mm -hmm. of people, and we become Mm -hmm. aware that patterns of behavior or voting or any of these other things are playing a role in these systems, 
Uh, in fact, often uh, advocates, change advocates, will say to people, if you want to help, start with your family. And mm -hmm. I, I, I just know, because I've read the letter, so many people, they hear that, they get excited, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and then they go, they go in and they talk to their, their caregiver or they talk to a sibling, and it does not go well. And all kinds of patterns uh, from their life with that person come up and get conflated with the particular topic at hand. And it's messy and difficult and people feel defeated. And at a time when polarization is accelerating all across the globe, it only serves to make it more difficult for families to be family. And I think it's important both that as much as possible, people can learn to have supportive family systems. I think that's psychologically useful and helpful. And I also think it's important that where we can, we are advocates for a more inclusive world because for some people, the stakes are very high. Mm -hmm. So is it even possible to mm. watch out for our own mental health and well-being and act as some kind of advocate for change on a social level within people in our family origin or current family system. Mm. Yes. And my, my answer off the bat is yes. I think, I think it is absolutely possible, but possible doesn't mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's uh, going to be something that other people want to participate in. So we have to remember. I love that. That's so good. Right. <laughs> Like we can, we can want it. I think it is possible, but in a family system, all of the units of that system need to participate in that. And it's only our job to do our role. And I, I think that it's important to, to have this conversation, but not at the expense of preserving family when there is an abusive dynamic going on, because there can often be the grooming dynamics in families where members of the family who are vulnerable are are told that they can't question that they can't leave that they can't set boundaries and so i want to remind anybody who is watching this or listening that if if there is something abusive in the dynamic it's not your responsibility to change it mm -hmm. and if you are uh, a survivor of some form of familial abuse you being good enough won't necessarily change that mm -hmm. So I want to take the pressure and the load off people who are in those dynamics and focus this conversation towards people who are in family interactions or dynamics that could change where, where there is more possibility and where each of us can take better responsibility of how we are showing up into that context. So I have a few ideas about that. Uh, interestingly, the role of mental health and the processes of changing what's happening for another person are often coexisting. And so this falls into the area of looking at both content and process that how we do conversation when it is good for us and our nervous system will also probably show the other person something about how to have meaningful conversations and how to listen, that it's not just the things that we say, but also how we care for ourselves that can be an act of political resistance or disruption or rebellion and can also at the same time be tool giving to the other person. So my first thought about that is 
when something happens or when we're going into an environment or we hear the person say the thing or we're anticipating what's coming at Thanksgiving, so to speak, the first idea is to pause, to ask ourselves, what is it that we want to achieve here? What are the ways that we could do that? What has to happen right now and what needs to happen in the future or over time? And most of us get so interested in creating change that we stop to actually, or we, we neglect to pause and ask ourselves, what's happening for me? What is the best, most meaningful way to affect change in my system? And pausing is a really valuable tool, not only before we have a conversation, so we can ask ourselves what's happening for me and how do I do this, but also in the middle of conversations. Often when things are tense, where we find ourselves getting into kind of like a, a, a rat's nest in the conversation is when we neglect to notice what's happening for us and we move too quickly, we say things without thinking about them. We say things without thinking about how they're gonna impact the other person. And so pausing is a really valuable tool, not only for us, but to help those conversations go well. And we need to remember that change happens in the long term. People are only taking in new information when they are emotionally regulated. And if people feel threatened, they shut down. And so it can be our, like a very specific tool. It seems really subtle. It might even feel like it's not significant or noticeable enough, but having meaningful conversations with other people and tracking where we are in terms of what's happening with our level of emotional arousal and where they are and what's happening with their level of emotional arousal, regardless of the content, is going to make sure that if we say something meaningful, they're in a space on, an, on a kind of nervous system level where they could actually take that information in. And so what we need to be doing is diagnosing our level of distress and other people's level of distress and making sure that we're having conversations when people feel open and interested and doing our part to not necessarily push someone to be reactive and making sure that we're not being reactive just for the sake of, you know, feeling like we got to say something, but we are saying it in a way that impairs the heart of the message. We know from Vygotsky's zone of proximal development that we actually need support, relational support to extend beyond our comfort zone. If we are at the edge of where we feel comfortable and competent, it's probably going to be very threatening and scary for us, not just psychologically, but in kind of in a, right, on a physiological level. Our, our bodies don't necessarily know what to do when we're entering into the space of the unknown. But if we are accompanied and we are supported and we are unthreatened or someone is being non-threatening with us, we are better able to step into that zone of uncertainty and learn something new. So what that means is if we are gonna help people engage in making change in their life, we probably need to work on our patience. We need to work on our ability to notice when I'm just wanting someone to get there already and I'm getting in the way of them, of actually supporting them to take in this new way of thinking and this new way of being. So emotion regulation for us and for other people is not only important for staying well after conversations, before conversations, during conversations, but also part of how we can engage in meaningful change for other people. And I want, I want to just name that I think we can have the best skills and the best tools, but if somebody is resistant to change and that is hurtful for us, 
there might be a level of vulnerability that is required of us to communicate that, to say, I'm, I'm feeling sad or that I, I want to have these conversations with you. And it feels hard to, you know, hard to go there. And what's really fascinating about vulnerability is while yes, it does open us up to being hurt by the other person, it also models the way forward for them that it's really hard for us to expect other people to enter into the vulnerability of uncertainty and change if we are, are not willing to go there. But I think probably the overarching theme of this too is if it's not the right time to have the conversation, if it's not the right place, or if you are being wounded, it is okay to not engage in those conversations. And it is so helpful to have resources, social, right? Um, self-care resources, cognitive resources, things that we can remind ourselves of, practices we can do so that before and after those conversations, we can find ourselves again and remember that even though somebody didn't like hearing what was happening, that there is a place where we are seen, there are people who know us, mm -hmm. uh, that the things that we are trying to do matter. And even if our families don't get it, get it or don't necessarily want to change, that we can find belonging somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <sighs> You're so good, Hillary. You're so mm -hmm. wise and insightful and empathetic. Mm -hmm. And, um, there were moments where I was smiling in, in what you were saying, and it didn't match what you were saying, but it's because I just felt <laughs> such uh, gratitude and mm -hmm. knowing you and pride in the hard work you've put in to be who you are. And I just so appreciate you sharing so many brilliant and practical and helpful things that I know is going to make a difference in someone's day and in someone's conversation. And um, for those people who might be encountering Dr. Hilly for the very first time, who don't know that you are one of the world's foremost uh, people in the world of making change <laughs> through mental health, at least in my opinion, um, where can they connect more with the work that you're doing every day? Oh, thank you for asking. And thank you for your kindness and sharing with me that I, I'm working on receiving that. <laughs> I'm letting, letting it go inside. I'll help you um, practice. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. That will be your role in my life. I, I can count on it. Good. Good. I look forward to that. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride, Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. I've got a website, HillaryLMcBride.com. I've got a couple books out. I'm on podcasts, lots. Uh, so you can check out other people's problems, right? That's the one that I do. I'm also a host currently on the Liturgist podcast. So mm -hmm. there's lots of stuff that, lots of content that's coming out um, pretty regularly. So many different ways to engage with my work if mm -hmm. it finds, finds its place inside of you somewhere. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here, Hillary. Thanks for having me. You know, there were moments in that conversation where I had to repress a need to laugh out loud because I felt such overwhelming joy. And it was so much fun to watch it back and get to laugh this time. <laughs> uh, Hillary is just so wise. I hope that you found that conversation as useful and insightful as I did. 
I know I've already put into practice some of the things I learned in that conversation in my own life. And I just want you to know that it means so much to me that you are here today. For those of you watching live, that you took some time out of your Monday night to join us. For those of you watching or listening later, I'm glad you're here. You can keep up with everything we're doing in the Cozy Robot world by liking and subscribing on YouTube or following and liking on other social media channels. And of course, all you Cozy Robots, I'll see you in just a few moments at the After Party on Discord. If you'd like to join us, head to CozyRobots.com. This show is made possible by simply the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. And so I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. I'd like to thank the show's producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. The Cozy Robot theme song was written and performed by Madison and Macy McCarg, my daughters. Andrew Golucky offered production support. Additional production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Sydney Smith designed all of our graphics. Uh, Landon Satterfield created the motion graphic and in motion graphic design. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors and Wardrobe Stylist, which I saw your comments about the shirts. Thank you. And Craft Services by Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. Bye-bye. The Cozy 